You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Coming to you from Classic City, the capital of the Bulldog Nation. It's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die-hard Georgia fans in the country. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA podcast. I'm your host, Tyler, and I am back today to answer more of your most pressing Georgia sports questions. I did a mailbag episode last week, and that was the first one, I think, like over a month, like five weeks, I think, was that the actual number. And as you can imagine, after five weeks of not answering questions on this podcast, the questions were piling up. You know, we had to cover a lot of stuff, guys. We had to cover all the, the coaching news on both the football and basketball fronts, obviously assistant coaches on the football side, the head coaching change on the basketball side. Of course, we were also trying to preview spring practice. So with all that going on, we just kind of got behind on answering all of your questions. And I tried, man. I really did. I really did, guys. I tried my best to put a dent into that long list of questions, that growing list of questions. But an hour and 20 minutes later, and I only got through like eight questions. So not that much progress, despite my best efforts and the marathon mailbag episode. But, but I'm committed. I'm committed, guys to answering all of the questions that get sent into us. And when I say all, I mean all. I, I I might fall short of that goal, but I'm committed to trying to accomplish that goal, to answer all the questions, every single one of them that are sent into us, whether it's on Twitter, whether it's Instagram, email. I'm committed to that, guys. If I've said it once, I've said it 10,000 times in this show, but we try to be a show of the people this show would not still be in existence. I would not be here talking to this microphone right now if it wasn't for all of you guys and all the support you have given our podcast over the years. And we are all very, very well aware that I am acutely aware of how much you guys have supported this show. And I am so grateful for that. So with that in mind, we just we, we try to be as responsive as we can. And really, as far as I'm concerned, it's just how you treat people in general. Like if somebody asks you a question, you answer it, right? You don't ignore them. And every one of you guys matters. We appreciate each and every one of you. So we want to answer all of your questions. And again, I might fall short. I, I know I miss a question here or there. I, I, I don't mean to, guys. I promise I'm never like playing favorites and I'm not trying to ignore your question. If I see it, and usually I see it and, I, and it registers and I try, as soon as I see them, I try to put them on my like growing list. I have a Google Doc of all these questions and I try to go put it on there, but sometimes I might be like out and about and think about like, hey, when I get home, I'll do this. I'll go put it on, on, the, on the list of questions. And sometimes I remember and I, there are certain, most of the time I remember. 
but there are times I will admit that I might forget and I might miss a question here or there, but that's not intentional. I try my best to get to all these. So with all that in mind, I want to get to all these questions, but that's really hard to do when we only do like one off-season mailbag a month and not once a week like we do during the season. So the plan is over the next couple of months to try to come on here once a week or so. I can't promise to be every week. Sometimes things happen, guys. There's news that hits, and we'll have to cover that stuff on the podcast. We know that's what you guys want to hear. But when we have a chance to, which hopefully is most weeks, we're going to come on here and try to answer at least a few questions on like a, a semi-weekly basis, hopefully a weekly basis. But, you know, sometimes things happen and developments pop up, and we got to cover that stuff. But at least for the next few months, the goal is to try to answer your questions on a more consistent and regular basis, not just like once a month, because that's why the questions get like piled up is we just don't get a chance to get to them. So I want to try my best to to be more responsive there, guys. That, that is certainly important to me. It's a goal of mine. And look, if you have any questions at any point, you don't have to wait. I mean, I try to put out, when I know I'm going to do a mailbag episode, I try to put the call out on social media to get last second questions in. But anytime a question comes to mind, guys, you don't have to wait for that call. Just let us know. It doesn't matter what day of the week. It doesn't matter, man. Just let us know. You can send us those on Twitter. It's at glory underscore UGA. You can DM us. You can tweet us. Whatever works for you guys. Um, Instagram is glory UGA podcast. And our email address is glory UGA podcast at gmail.com. We're also, we're trying, we're in the like waiting process right now. We're trying to get a Twitter community started which I'm really excited about the possibilities of that where we can kind of interact and connect with you guys more directly on Twitter. And I've applied for that. I'm waiting to hear back from Twitter on getting approval. I think that's going to happen. I think it's kind of a pro forma thing, but I guess they have to go through all the proper channels and do the whole nine yards with the application process. So as soon as I hear back on that, guys, I'll let you guys know. You'll be the first to know, and we'll get that going. And again, I'm really excited about the possibilities of that. I I know some people like us to do Twitter spaces, um, but it's just really hard to sit down and have time to do that on a consistent basis when we also have to sit down and actually record the podcast. So I know people want us to try that, and we've done it before, we've done it once or twice, but we'll try to do that occasionally. I can't promise that's gonna be on a consistent basis, but we're gonna try, guys. We're gonna try to interact with you guys and um, communicate and just connect with you guys on a more consistent basis, and I think answering your questions on the show is certainly a part of that. But let's go ahead, that's enough explanation. Let's get into these questions. And the question of the day, usually, guys, we always start with a big picture question, and we've never really like had a tagline for it, but we're going to start calling this the question of the day. The first big picture question we're going to start with on each of these mailbag episodes, I'm going to call it the question of the day. And it doesn't mean that other questions aren't important, they aren't good. These are just going to be the big picture questions that we can really dive into and go deep on. So our very first, our inaugural question of the day is from Darren. I appreciate it, Darren. Darren always has some really good questions for us. And he asks, the Georgia offensive line will be the most improved unit on the team. I guess he starts off with a statement. This leads to a more explosive running game with huge play action opportunities. All of this equals the best offense in Georgia history. Am I right? And Darren, I love this question because I don't think that's an outlandish thing to suggest. I know on the surface, people looking from the outside in, and certainly people, well, the people in the fan base, people outside the fan base, look at the quarterback position because that's where everybody's eyes always start, right? We're talking about the offense, the most important position on the field. And you look at who Georgia has at quarterback, and we have this five foot nothing former walk on a quarterback who might weigh 100 and what, 175 pounds soaking wet, maybe, and that might be very, very generous. 
And they look at Stetson Bennett and they say, oh, there's limitations. This can't be an explosive offense. No way. This can't be an elite offense. This is this is an offense that's just going to be a game manager type offense. can be just good enough to, to work in conjunction with an elite defense. Without elite defense, Georgia can't be a contender on the national scale with a guy like Stetson Bennett leading your offense. You just can't do it. We've seen it time and time again. You have to have the elite quarterbacks. You have to have the Trevor Lawrences, the Bryce Youngs, the Mac Jones, the Deshaun Watsons. You have to have those kind of guys to be an elite offense. And on some level, I get where people are coming from when they look at it from that perspective, because I do agree. I'm not going to sit here and argue with the idea that the quarterback position is the most important position on the field. I think it's critical. And generally speaking, to win at a high level, you have to have high-level quarterback play. I mean, the proof is in the pudding. Look at the playoff teams the past couple years. You've got Joe Burrow. You've got Baker Mayfield, Kyler Murray, Deshaun Watson, Trevor Lawrence, Justin Fields, Jameis Winston, Marcus Mariota back in the day, like in the, the first years of the college football playoff. And then you have Jake Fromm and Stetson Bennett. Like, which of those two are not like the others, right? So clearly you can win with a quarterback who's by like conventional standards and, and by you know physical tools from that perspective is not an elite quarterback talent, an elite quarterback prospect. But by and large, I just rattled off just off the top of my head some of those names. By and large, to win at a high level, to contend on a national level, you have to have an elite quarterback. So I get it. I get where people are coming from. But I think what happens is people get stuck in this fixed mindset. They look at every team from that perspective and say, well, you can't win because you don't have that kind of quarterback. Now, obviously, we have been able to get there, especially last year, with elite defense. And in 2017, we had a really good defense. It wasn't like a dominant level defense, but I think you could argue in the context of that season, it was an elite defense with guys like Roquan Smith, obviously. But we had so many awesome pieces around a young freshman quarterback. And Jake Fromm, I mean, we had Nick Chubb, you have Sonny Michelle, two of the all-time great running backs in Georgia football history, which is saying something when you're talking about RBU. Then at wide receiver, maybe not have elite prospects, but you have some high-level guys, some experienced vets with guys like Terry Godwin and Javon Wims, a really good, strong, veteran offensive line, and great coaching. And with that formula, we were able to get to the college football playoff. We won a game, obviously, this epic Rose Bowl game, and we didn't fall ever so slightly short. But it doesn't matter. Hey, I'm not even worried about that year anymore because, hey, we made up for it last year, right? I'm not, I'm not even bothered by that anymore. I mean, kind of. Of course, that will always live with me. But it's not as deep of a wound as it once was, as open of a wound as it once was. But back to the point, the fact remains, yes, we have had two years where we made the college playoff without, I mean, I would say, certainly it's fair to say, without an elite quarterback. But we have almost been the exception. I guess you could say Ian Book with Notre Dame would also be an exception. Michigan State when they made it an exception, but because we didn't have that league quarterback. And so people just have this fixed mindset that if you don't have this league quarterback, number one, you can't be a national contender. Number two, you can't have an elite offense. But it's 1,000%. You can call it a fixed mindset, but really what it is more than anything, it's confirmation bias. They go into the equation, they look at the season, they look at the situation and say, this Georgia offense can't be good. They can't be an elite offense. They can just be an okay offense that's carried along by a, a, a historic level defense because you can't have a good offense with that guy. And so, and, and people in our fan base, my man Curtis, my co-host, longtime co-host, guys, you know, I mean, he, he's like, like I was the, the president of the Jake Fromm fan club. Curtis is openly the president of the 
anti-Stetsabinic club. I mean, that, that's who he is right now. You guys know that. I mean, he the guy can do nothing right in his eyes. When he, when he tries to praise him, it's always a backhanded compliment, right? It's because people go into it. They look at Stetson with a preconceived notion that there's a limitation on how good he can be and how good our offense can be with him at the helm. And they are dead set on looking for any sort of evidence, anything that would prop up and support that opinion, that preconceived notion, while at the same time willfully ignoring and overlooking any evidence to the contrary. And the fact is there is plenty of evidence to the contrary that our offense cannot be elite with Stetson Bennett running the show. I'll give you two stats right here at the top of my head. So the S&P Plus, we talked about this last week. It was one of our mailbag questions, if I remember correctly. That is one of the big time stats that I really pay attention to. It's a really advanced stat and it really looks at offensive efficiency. We ended the season last year, guys, number two nationally in S&P Plus offense. Behind who? Ohio State, who was ridiculous on offense. You know who we were also ahead of in S&P Plus offense last year? Alabama, right? Now, everyone who watches college football, I don't say everyone, but the vast majority of college football fans out there, if you say Georgia's offense, Alabama's offense, which one would you take? Who's got the better offense? Without hesitation, I would say 99% of people would say Alabama, right? In a landslide, no questions asked. But that's not really what the numbers say. We were slightly ahead of them, but still ahead of them in S&P Plus offense last year. If you look at yards per play, which is another, another big time stat I pay attention to, everybody wants to rely on the old traditional numbers that we used to look at 20 years ago, like total offense, rushing yards, passing yards. You, it's a new era, guys. We have advanced stats. And even yards per play is not really an advanced stat. It's just an efficiency measure. But we were fourth nationally, guys, in yards per play on offense last year, 6.98. So we were at, and to, to me, yards per play is an efficiency number because it adjusts for pace and the fact that you might not run as many plays as some other teams if you're on a hurry-up tempo-based offense. So it's certainly an efficiency number, but it's also an explosiveness number. So we were top five nationally, guys, in yards per play. And I use Alabama because I know that they were the measuring stick, right? And everybody, you know, going into that national championship game, well, it's Georgia's great defense versus the Alabama offense. And it's like, well, I mean, our offense is really good too. People just don't want to look at the facts. Alabama's offense, guys, was 16th nationally. Still really good, but 16th nationally in yards per play. They were 6.54 yards per play. We were 6.98. We were almost, I mean, not quite, but almost a half a yard better than Alabama in yards per play last year. And that's pretty significant, guys. That's not a little number. But then you look at total yards per game, and it would seemingly tell you a different story, right? The total yards per game, Alabama's top 10 nationally, number seven in the country, 488 yards per game. Georgia, where's Georgia? Oh my God, let's scroll down. Although you find Georgia barely in the top 25, on the fringe of the top 25, coming at exactly number 25, 442 yards a game. So clearly the Alabama offense is just better, it's more explosive, it's more efficient, but it's not. If you really take the time and you have an open mind, and you look at it objectively, and you don't stay stuck to these preconceived notions and become a victim of confirmation bias, you look at the numbers, and it tells you, point blank, this Georgia offense was elite last year, guys. That was last year, okay? That was last year with a quarterback who, yeah, he played a good bit for us back in, in 2020 during the COVID season, but he was taking number three reps at best all, all offseason long, whether it's spring practice, 
fall camp. This guy, I mean, remember G-Day last year, guys? Stetson just got like some token snaps. The coaches, and the coaches would say what they would say to defend that. Oh, we know what Stetson can do. But the guy wasn't getting snaps. He was not in serious consideration. All of us, like he, he was the guy back in 2020, we say, hey, you shake his hand. Thanks for your service, buddy. We appreciate you. But on to the next guy. We'd all forgotten about Stetson Bennett. And I throw myself in that too. I was all aboard the JT Daniels train. All of us were. But we put up those kind of numbers offensively last year with a guy who didn't start the first week as our starter, and then he got the, the start in week two against UAB, and everyone's like, oh my God, we're all panicking. Again, myself included, what's going to happen? He goes out there and throws five touchdown passes. Yeah, it's UAB. But hey guys, if you actually watch some of these teams that aren't the SEC, UAB is a really good defense, guys. It's a top 25 caliber defense year in, year out since they since their program's been reinvigorated and restarted, I guess. And then JT comes back in South Carolina. I think he put up 300 in that game. Looks really good. And then Stetson throws the, the interception in that game. It's oh my God, clearly it can't be Stetson. It's got to be JT. He's back. Please, JT, be healthy. Don't get hurt again. He starts the, the Vanderbilt game. We destroy Vanderbilt, put up 60 on Vanderbilt, and JT plays like barely a quarter. But then that's the last we see of JT Daniels. And the rest of the way, we won a national championship with a guy that was not even on the radar all off season long. And he was able to put up that kind of season and put up good numbers himself. Elite numbers? No, but he was an explosive quarterback. We were taking shots and he was hitting those shots, which is always one of the funny things too. Everybody had this conception. Well, Stetson Benny, he's a, he's a five foot nothing, a former walk-on. He's got no arm. I mean, we can't be explosive offense with him at quarterback. And it's like, um, I, I beg your pardon. Let's actually look at this objectively. Stetson Bennett ended the season, a national championship season again, let me remind you, number three nationally in yards per attempt. 10 yards per attempt. Let me run down some numbers that that was higher than. It was actually one-tenth of a yard behind C.J. Stroud, right? He was 10.1. Stetson was 10 yards per attempt. That was ahead of, let's see, run down some numbers here. Caleb Williams at Oklahoma, who everybody is all giddy about. That was higher than Sam Howell at North Carolina, higher than Kenny Pickett, who's probably going to be a first-round draft pick, higher than Matt Corral, who might or might not be a first-round draft pick, higher than, oh my God, is it possible? Higher than even His Majesty Bryce Young the first. In fact, Stetson averaged over a full yard more per attempt than Bryce Young did last year. So those are just a couple of names, right? And again, that's with Stetson taking essentially zero reps with the ones all offseason. And then to add on top of that, think about our weapons, guys. In spring practice, early on in spring practice, our obvious number one target, the guy who I still hope he finds a way in the first round. Probably not going to happen, but was on his way to being that to have a breakout year. George Pickens, right? It was going to be George Pickens. George goes down. I was devastated. I remember I was at a tennis lesson and I was like, oh my God, oh my God. And then we get news like a couple days later, the guy that we thought was going to replace him, Jermaine Burton, he goes down too. Oh my God, oh my. I was also at a tennis lesson when that happened. And it's like, oh my God, what is happening now? And he came, he comes back. His injury wasn't terrible, but he dealt with a lot of injuries, you know, just some nagging stuff throughout fall camp, the early part of the season. Arian Smith, I think has played like a total of like nine plays in his Georgia history. Marcus Rosemey, Jack Saint was, was playing, but still fighting back from a brutal injury against Florida the year before. Karis Jackson was playing, but barely for most of the season. Then by the end of the season, maybe you want to say he's back to 100%, but I honestly don't know if Karis was ever fully 100% like what he was in 2020 all year long. So what are we left with? We're left with a true freshman tight end in Brock Bowers as our number one option, a true freshman wide receiver in A.D. Mitchell as our top wide receiver, and then a redshirt freshman 
little dude, another guy like Stetson that nobody gave a chance, nobody thought anything of, and Lad McConkey. And those were the options for at least the first half of the year. Those are really the guys that he was throwing to. No George Pickens, no Don Blaylock, really no Arian Smith, made a play or two early in the year and then his leg fell off. No Jermaine Burton for stretches. No Kiaris Jackson, at least like 100% Kiaris Jackson all year as far as I'm concerned. And oh yeah, Darnell Washington, who we thought was going to be that dude at tight end that Brock Bowers ended up being, he was out for the first half of the year, more or less the first half of the regular season, with a foot injury he suffered in fall camp. And we were still able to be as productive as we were last year. Oh yeah, and just throw in this too. Can't forget about the offensive line. Got to throw the big ugly some love here. Tate Rattledge, who I was told all summer long was the best offensive lineman on the team. And that includes Jamari Salary. At least that's what I was being told coming out of fall camp. He gets through like the first series of the first game of the year. Warren Erickson, who was supposed to be our starting center coming of the year, he gets hurt in fall camp. He comes back and has to play guard. He's playing out of position all year long. Well documented, especially on this show. So all of these things, all of this context, we had no business being as efficient and as explosive as we were last year. So think about that, guys. Despite all the obstacles, we were that explosive and that efficient. What's going to happen this year, guys, when Stetson Bennett has the full year? As long as he holds on to the job, we'll talk more about that later this week when we recap week two of spring practice. But if he holds on to the job, what's he going to do now with the full offseason under his belt of taking those reps of the ones and being the guy? What are we going to do with Brock Bowers now as an experienced veteran, as a sophomore? Hopefully Darnell Washington coming back healthy and be healthy for a full season. Karis Jackson fully healthy for a season. A.D. Mitchell, year two of A.D. Mitchell, who I think is ready to explode on the scene this year. Lad McConkey, I've heard big things about Lad this spring. He's, our, he's ready to take the next step. Don Blaylock coming back healthy, hopefully getting back to his old form. Arik Gilbert back in the mix. Arian Smith hopefully is able to reattach his leg and keep it attached this time. Tate Rattler's come back on the offensive line. Broderick Jones at left tackle. Marius Mims might find his way into the equation somewhere. This offense, from a personnel standpoint, if we can stay healthy, 100,000% is in better shape than the roster and the offense that we had last year from an experience standpoint and really from a talent standpoint as well. So if we were that explosive and that efficient, one of the top five most explosive and top five most efficient offenses in the country last year, why can't we be more explosive and more efficient this year? Why not? Seriously, why not? And here's another factor. Todd Munkin, he had the offense built around JT Daniels all offseason long because he was the presumed starter. He thought it, we thought it, Kirby thought it, everybody thought it, everyone in America thought about it. Even Vladimir Putin thought that JT Daniels was going to be our starting quarterback last year. So our offense was built around him. Think about the first couple games. We were throwing the ball 30 plus times with JT Daniels in the game. When Stetson coming into the game and being the starter, we changed the offense. It changed, guys. We did that on the fly, and we were still as explosive and as efficient, as productive as we were on offense last year. Todd Munkin, as far as I'm concerned, one of the greatest coaching jobs in UGA history. I mean, Dan Lanning's the guy that got the head coaching job, and we give Kirby Smart this credit for his defensive wizardry, and very all very well-deserved. We don't talk enough about Todd Munkin, and to think he has now a full offseason, after a full se- uh, mostly a full season with, with Stetson as a quarterback— to further adjust the offense to fit the skill set of who is quarterback and also the talent around him, who they're going to be, the possibilities are endless, guys. This offense, I fully expect it to be one of the, if not the best Georgia offenses in UGA history. Now, best offense in Georgia history, that comes down to how you define best, right? Statistically, if you go by the old traditional numbers, like yards per game, 
the 2013 George offense was the most productive George offense from that perspective, 484 yards a game. But we don't, I mean, not only, this is still really good. We averaged 6.66 yards per play that game. Again, I put a lot more emphasis on that number than I do yards per game. Last year, guys, again, we averaged 6.98 yards per play. So from that standpoint, we were a more productive offense last year. I mean, could you say, because that's the goal standard, right? 2013, 2012, those are what people consider the two best offenses in Georgia history because you get yards per game and that's the highest yardage total. But again, I don't think that really tells the whole story. I think you could argue last year from a production standpoint, from an efficiency and an explosiveness standpoint, was one of the, if not the best Georgia offenses in history. Like really, from a production standpoint, I think you'd argue that. Again, as I laid out all the context of last year, all the obstacles in our way to being that kind of offense, and we still were able to put up those kind of numbers and be that productive, I fully expect this offense to be better and more productive. So you know what, Darren? Let's do it, man. I'm going to agree with you 100% here. This is going to be, if everyone stays healthy, the best offense in Georgia history. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Okay, sticking on that theme of the Georgia offense. Our good friend Josh has not really a question. This isn't a question. It's a statement, but I'm going to include it on here anyway because it kind of lends itself to what Darren was talking about, and we love Josh. We want to give Josh a shout-out here. Hope school's going well, my man. And uh, what Josh said is, how crazy would it be if we could come out in 12 personnel with Delp in Washington in three points and Bowers and Gilbert out wide? How do you stop that? Josh, I don't know if there's a team in the country that can really, truly stop that. And I mean, you call that 12 personnel with Bowers and Gilbert playing receiver. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, Josh, I think, is that just 14 personnel? Like, is that what that is? One running back, four tight ends. I mean, those guys are all tight ends. Delb, Washington, Gilbert, Bowers, by definition, the position they play, they're labeled as tight ends. It just so happens that all four of them have the ability and the skill set to split out wide and function and function effectively as wide receivers. And Going back to Darren's question, this is why I'm including Josh's right here following Darren's question. I think this is one of the biggest reasons why our offense was so dynamic and explosive last year and why I'm so high on the possibilities this year. 
it goes back to the tight ends, guys. Just like I said that Jordan Davis was the key to our defense all last year. Like he was the one that was able, he allowed us to be able to defend the run with even numbers in the box and stay structurally sound the back end. We didn't have to add extra numbers in the box to, to stop the run because Jordan Davis just ate up so much space, ate up so many bodies there in the interior of our defense. He was the key to everything. I'm not saying he was the best player, but he was the key to everything. Offensively, Brock Bowers was the key to everything that we did. Him and Darnell on the field together and our ability, and throwing Fitzpatrick in there as well, our tight ends were the key to our offense last year because their ability to function in line and out wide, split out as receivers, flexed out, that allowed us to create so many mismatches and teams simply could not match up with it. I was screaming for this late in the year, especially after the SEC Championship game, that month lead up that we had to the Orange Bowl. You guys remember, go back and roll the tape. I was screaming that not only do we need to use more 12 personnel, we use a ton of 12 personnel. We were in 12 personnel almost 60% of the time last year, but we needed to go with more 13 personnel. I, I broke down the tape, watched that Michigan team. I watched every single game they played that, that last year leading up to that game. And every time a team went with 12 or 13 personnel, teams for some reason, inexplicably in the Big Ten, just wouldn't commit to it. But when they did, Michigan's defense changed because they had to stick with their base personnel and they were using Aiden Hutchinson, who might or might not be the first pick. He's certainly going to be a a top three, top five pick in in the NFL draft. Our boy Trayvon Walker might have something to say about that with him being number one potentially. But his skill set and what made him so dynamic and such a monster was his ability to just wreck your game plan as a pass rusher off the edge. When you forced them into their base defense, they were basically operating in a 3-4 and he was playing more or less outside linebacker and he was dropping into coverage. He had coverage responsibilities in their base package. And so I'm sitting here saying, well, we need to get them into that because when you're trying to game plan for that Michigan team, what's number one in the game plan? You got to take the game wrecker out of the equation. You got to take Aiden Hutchinson out of the equation, take him out of the game. And that's easier said than done with a guy that talented with the motor that he has. So what do you need to do? You need to make him an outside linebacker, force him to play in coverage. And how do you do that? Well, you do that by putting extra tight ends on the field, 12 and again, 13 personnel. And I was I was convinced, guys. I mean, obviously we jumped on them early in that game, but as soon as I saw our game plan coming out with, with the 12 and 13 personnel consistently in that game and forced them into their base defensive package, I knew it was a done deal because they were not going to be able to match up. And we carry that through again into the national championship game. It is tough, guys. It's all about hybrid players because when we have those guys, guys like Brock Bowers and Darnell Washington and Eric Gilbert and Oscar Delp, who can just as easily be playing in line as could flexed out, Defenses can't match up with that. If they see tight ends, what defense coordinators do is they go with heavy personnel because when they see 12, 13 personnel, that screams run, run, run. And if you leave your nickel package on the field to defend against the possibility of us throwing the football to those guys like Brock Bowers, who was just a freaking monster last year, well, then we're going to run the football down your throat. We're still Georgia. We're still RBU. We still have that pounded at you mentality. We still have that culture. So we're happy to run it right down your throat if you want to stick in your nickel package and you want to take away the passing game with Brock Bowers and, and Darnell Washington and now hopefully Arik Gilbert and Oscar Delp. That's fine. And then if you go heavy, then what do we do? We flex those guys out. They can't win. It's all about the hybridization of college football. The only way you can really match up with it defensively is to have hybrid players of your own. And those guys, those guys are honestly just harder to find than it is to find guys that can do an offense like Brock Bowers and Darnell and Reed Gilbert. So I know that everyone right now, like the big story, again, we're going to talk about this 
Later this week, we'll get Curtis on here and we recap week two of spring practice. I mean, obviously, as you guys can probably imagine, one of the, the leading headlines of of that episode is going to be the quarterback situation. How, oh, I don't know, what's going on? We've got Carson Beck. We've got Brock Vanderriff getting reps to the ones. That's been at working some with the threes. What's going on here? We'll talk about that. I know that's where a lot of attention is, but I'm going to let Curtis have his say on that. But to me, I, we'll get to that. But to me, the bigger story as far as I'm concerned, is a regular playing tight end. I thought last year, that's where I would rather him play. When he transferred in, what I said, and I'll stand by it, is if he wants to play receiver, that's fine. He, he can be a really good receiver. He can function out there. He's athletic enough, but he's much more of a threat as a tight end because of his hybrid ability. It's better for us if he played tight end because, again, I think that you can really create a lot of mismatches and you can be really explosive in creating those mismatches, which we saw last year. So I'm ecstatic that he is playing tight end. I think a part of that is that he doesn't really have the leverage. You know, coming off the, the his freshman year, he had a good freshman year and he had a lot of leverage. He was being recruited by everybody. You know, goes to, commits to Florida, the decommits from Florida. And so he kind of had some leverage to say, hey, if you want me, I'm going to play receiver. But then when he takes the year off, more or less, which is what he did, you all of a sudden don't have as much leverage. And then on top of that, he had to see what Brock Powers did last year. I mean, come on, how can you not? He's like, oh yeah, I want to do that. I want to be that kind of guy. And so with him coming and playing tight end now, and we'll see if it's a long-term thing. I think it is. I mean, what I'm being told right now I from some coaching buddies that were there for the coaching clinic this past week, that he's playing tight end. Like he's flexing out some, but he like he's in the tight end group. That's what he's doing right now. And that's right now, it's spring. We can see what happens. But I'm very excited about that because if we were able to create the mismatches that we were last year with Brock Bowers, the true freshman, Darnell, not 100%, and then John Fitzpatrick, imagine what we're going to be able to do with a sophomore Brock Bowers, a healthy Darnell Washington, fingers crossed, with a guy, a true freshman, Oscar Delp, I think is insanely talented, Arik Gilbert, we know what he brings to the table. I mean, guys, this is a mismatch waiting to happen. And this is one of the reasons why I do think the Georgia offense in 2022 has a really good chance to be the best offense in Georgia football history. And with that, let's go from one longtime listener and our good friend Josh to another longtime listener and good friend of the podcast, our guy Cliff, who has a really good question, always good questions from Cliff. And Cliff says he's got a long-term question for next season. Brock Bowers is obviously going to get a lot of coverage, and defenses are going to be focused on not letting him beat them. Which other offensive target or targets will benefit the most from this in 2022? Great question, Cliff. And there's a couple guys that come to mind for me. One I just mentioned in that last question from Josh. I think Eric Gilbert, if all goes according to plan, if he continues to develop and drop weight and get himself into playing shape, which I fully expect him to do. I mean, I hate to even put this out there because it makes it seem so far away. We're still five months away, though, from the start of the 2022 season. So he's got time to do that. He's been back with the program, what, since January, late December. So about three to four-ish months, right? So he's made strides, made progress. He's getting to go through a full spring camp. He'll be able to go through a, a full fall camp. And I fully expect him to be in great playing shape and ready to go and be the guy we all thought and hoped that he was going to be when we landed him a, a year or so ago, but close-ish to this time last year, I think was it last May when we officially landed him, I think he'll be ready to be something close to that guy. And you're right, Brock Bowers is going to get all the attention for our, our offense, and that will create opportunities for other players to step up and make an impact. But the thing is also about Brock, though, just real quick here, kind of an aside, 
he was that guy very early on for us last year. Every defense that faced us came into that game saying, hey, who do we have to take away? And Brock Powers is the obvious answer. And for the large majority of the season, really most games, they weren't able to do that. So Brock is still very much going to be that guy for us. I fully expect him to be. However, I do I, I do agree with the premise of your question. There are going to be opportunities for other people to step up, make an impact, and, and certainly help give Brock more opportunities to be the guy that he was last year in terms of the receptions, receiving yards, and numbers he put up last year. And the first guy that comes to mind outside of Eric Gilbert would be A.D. Mitchell. I mentioned him a little bit earlier in the episode. He's a guy that I am a about ready to go all in on saying that he's going to be a guy that takes, I don't, by storm, I don't know if that's the right way to say, is that too strong? I don't know. But I think he's a name that everyone in the Georgia fan base knows right now. And if you watch the National Championship game, obviously he made that spectacular catch for us to, to take the lead late in that game in the fourth quarter against Alabama to really help us win that football game. So I, I think he made a name for himself in that one play, but I think coming into that game, that your average college football fan, did they know who A.D. Mitchell was? They said, hey, A.D. Mitchell, quick, tell me what team he plays for. Well, I mean, less than half, I would say, less than half of your average college football fans would be able to identify what team he even plays for. I don't think that's going to be a problem for A.D. Mitchell this year. I think he's, and, and that's not going to be a that problem for him because I think he's going to be that kind of guy. Kind of like what George Pickens was for us, you know? I think the average college football fans, go back to that, that example here, I think when you say, hey, George Pickens, two seconds, give me the answer. What team does he play for? And I would say 75 plus percent of college football fans would identify Georgia as who George Pickens played for. I think you're going to see a similar step for A.D. Mitchell in year two. I think he's going to be our clear alpha at wide receiver. I think we have a number of guys can make plays for us out wide, but I think he is going to be that dude. He started to show those signs as the year progressed last year, and without George in the picture, and now with a full year under his belt, no Jermaine Burton, he's going to be that guy. He's got all the skills you could possibly want. He has the twitchiness in space. He has the leaping ability, the body control. He's got, he has strong hands, you know, are they consistent? That's the one area where I would say he needs to continue to improve. It's not like he dropped a ton of passes, but he did drop a few passes. You got to throw that out there. He runs routes really well. He's got the good size that you want in a wide receiver. He's got everything you want in a receiver. And I think with more opportunities, you're under his belt. I think he's going to be that guy for us. And I think he's going to get a ton of looks and make a ton of plays for us in this 2022 football season. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. All right, guys. So there's 30 minutes plus of good, strong, hard football talk for you guys to fill that football fix. But the rest of the show, we don't have a ton of time left here today. I get out of here in a few minutes. But I do want to spend some time covering some of the other sports. Got quite a few questions, especially about baseball right now after this past weekend against Kentucky, where 
Ooh, it's tough to watch. Tough to watch that pitching display. It's been that way for the past couple of weeks. We have some questions about that. We even got a gymnastics question, which I we had, we had a tennis question last week, and that might have been like a second or third tennis question we've gotten. We don't really get a ton of those, but I was thrilled to talk about it. Gymnastics, though, I think this might be a first, maybe, possibly. But let's go ahead and go with the baseball stuff here. Uh, they got two related baseball questions because I don't think you can talk about our chances for postseason play and where we are right now without talking about the disaster that is our pitching staff. So let's go with the first question. This was from Brett, who asked, after the first two weeks of conference play, on a scale of 1 to 10, how concerned are you about the Georgia baseball team? I also got a question from uh, from Sam, who's another good friend of the podcast, who asked me to kind of go over what I think the chances are for us to make the postseason. We had a very similar question last week, but I'm happy to kind of work that in here as well because I think it's a very important question. That changes from series to series and week to week, honestly. And after this past week against Kentucky with, again, that just dreadful, dreadful display of pitching, I am I am officially concerned. I am. I'm very officially concerned here. So let's go with Brett's. And, and Trey had a question. Can the pitchers quit walking batters and giving up grand slams, which he did in the first inning of, of the game, the rubber game against Kentucky yesterday, which, yeah, that didn't help things. Um, Trey says, it is quickly becoming painful. Trey, I feel your pain. I share your pain. Um, it's tough. It's a tough watch right now. Outside of Friday nights. Friday nights with John Cannon, lights out. John Cannon, as our Friday night starter, our number one pitcher, our ace, is literally as good as there is in the SEC and maybe even the country. He is that guy. He has been a rock for us. He had one kind of semi-rough start against Tech, but outside of that, he's been just lights out. Fantastic. But outside of him, it has been an outright disaster. And that's that's putting it kindly, honestly. That's putting it mildly. It has been abysmal. It has been dreadful. It has been alarming. It has been disorienting. That really, it's like disorienting trying to watch that. You're like, what is happening? Are you literally trying to give up hits? Are you trying to allow runners to get on base? It's been tough. But Cannon, just to give you an idea of how stark the divide has been between John Cannon and our other weekend starters. So we were only two series in, Mississippi State, which we we, did, we took two out of three against Mississippi State, who is the defending national champion, but they're not that team this year. And the Kentucky, which got swept in the first weekend, John Cannon against Mississippi State, eight innings pitched, zero runs, gave up three hits, nine strikeouts, zero walks. And then Kentucky on Friday night, another strong seven innings pitch, gave up two earned runs in this game, four hits, six Ks, and again, zero walks, okay? Zero walks. So through two games against SEC caliber opponents, not SEC caliber, straight up SEC opponents, John Cannon has gone 15 innings, given up two earned runs combined, seven hits combined, 15 strikeouts combined, zero walks. That's a hell of a stat line. That's great. You think, man, Georgia, Georgia's got a pretty good team this year. Whew, maybe, like most of the team, but our Saturday and Sunday starters have been just flat out embarrassing. Now, Liam Sullivan, there is some context here. We've had just this rash of injuries for the second year in a row with our pitching staff. Liam Sullivan started the year as our number two guy, our Saturday starter, and pitched fairly well for the most part, but he's missed each of the last two weekends in SEC play with quote-unquote arm soreness. And when you say that, like, I'm just, I'm gun-shy in general with pitchers, but especially with the rash of injuries that we've had the past couple years, that's very concerning. When you talk about any kind of arm injury. And Scott Strickland, you know, after the first weekend, he made it sound like, oh, it's no big deal. You know, he'll be back out there next week. We're really confident. It's like, okay, whew, all right, well, we're fine. And then you get to 
this past weekend in Lexington, yes, it was cold, but it used the cold as an excuse, saying, well, you know, with arm storms, you don't want the guy pitching when it's cold. And it's like, well, now I'm concerned, man. Like, I, is it really just because he's cold? Because it's cold and, you, and that messes with the soreness? I, I don't know. I don't know. I hope he's back this weekend. But even if he's back, I don't know if that solves all the problem. It certainly helps mitigate the issues. But again, Sullivan, while he's certainly been better than the guys who've been pitching on Saturdays and Sundays, hasn't been like a rock star. We don't have like the Tony Losey to the Emerson Hancock that we've had in the past. That one-two punch at the top of the lineup that gives you a really, really good feeling going into any kind of weekend against an SEC opponent thinking you can take two out of three. But still, even though he might not be that caliber pitcher, I mean, he's been good this year. It was ERAs like in the 3-6 range. I want to say 3-6-8, He's been good for us. But with him out, it has been a struggle because outside of John Ken, listen to these numbers, guys. Listen to these numbers, okay? So four conference games where we had somebody other than John Cannon start games for us, we have given up. Here's the numbers. This is insane. So against Mississippi State, game two, Saturday against Mississippi State, gave up 10 runs on 12 hits, nine walks, six different pitchers used in that game. Game three against Mississippi State two Sundays ago, 20, yes, I did not stutter, 20 runs given up on 18 hits and 13 walks eight pictures used. Uh, Game two this past Saturday against Kentucky, 10 runs given up, nine hits, six more walks, only four pictures used in that game. And then Sunday, a couple days ago against Kentucky, another 18 runs given up, 20 hits, eight more walks, seven pitches used. So again, John Cannon starts, two starts in SEC play, zero, two earned runs, zero walks, seven hits combined. That's what we're doing on Fridays. That's as good as it gets. Over the four games on Saturday and Sunday over the past two weeks, what is that? That is 30, 40, 58 runs allowed. If I did that math correctly, 30, 40, 58 runs allowed. How many hits? So that's 30, 50, 59 hits allowed. 22, 28, 36 walks. 36 walks, guys. What on earth is happening? Is this real life? Is this, this is D1 baseball? This is the SEC? And that's the product that we're putting out there on Saturdays and Sundays. I know there's injuries, but there's no one else that can do anything better than that. I mean, is this community college baseball that we're playing right now? This is not going to get the job done. I am highly concerned. I had fairly high hopes this year. I didn't really necessarily think that we were a college world series team. I mean, it was always an outside shot. I love what we had at the top of the line, but John Cannon, I was hoping Sullivan could be that guy. I thought we had some veteran guys come back in the bullpen, been around. I like Will Pearson. I like Jaden Woods. But with all the injuries, we have no chance. We have You have no chance to win baseball games on Saturday and Sunday when you're doing that. It's a miracle that we took two out of three against Mississippi State because we made a late comeback in game two. We were able to just, I was 11 to 10 to outscore them in that game. I mean, we scored 13 runs over the last two games in the series against Kentucky on Saturday and Sunday. That should be enough to win most games, but it wasn't because we gave up 10 runs and 18 runs. You just can't win. You can't win. So I'm concerned. Our offense, I think, is better than what it has been. I think we have more options in our line. I think we have more guys that can do damage. 
And I think we have been, by and large, hitting the ball better. I think we have more weapons in the lineup. I mean, the Tate brothers have been awesome. They've been they've been really good for the past couple years. Corey Collins as a sophomore is really coming along. I like Cole Wagner. I think he's got some pop in his bat. Josh McCallister starting to come around. Ben Anderson has been a revelation. He's been like what he was in 2020 prior to COVID shutting everything down. Last year was a major down year for Ben Anderson. He was better than that. And he's off to a hell of a start. He's hitting better than anyone on the team right now. He's a leadoff hitter. He's hitting for average. He's hitting for power. He plays a great center field. I think we have a good team outside of the pitching disaster on Saturday and Sunday. And again, getting Sullivan back, I think will help. But Sunday still, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is on Sundays right now. So if, if you don't follow the baseball team, we had a transfer a guy named Dylan Ross who was penciled in to be that Sunday starter, and he had one win on the year. Had, you know, pitching fairly well, three earned runs, but he's out for the year. He, he's gone. He's done for the year, and it's like, oh, okay. Well, where do we turn next? And then Will Childers, a guy that might have been a guy that could fill in that spot, he's out for the year now too. And it's like, oh, okay, all right. So now it's just a straight up committee approach. I. I have heard a lot of people talk about Jaden Woods. They want to see Jaden Woods get a chance. The starting pitcher's done a good job for us out of the bullpen. Guys, the problem with Jaden Woods right now is he doesn't have command of three pitches. He has two pitches, and that's why he's a really effective reliever. They're two good pitches, but he's got to develop more of a curve and slider. He doesn't have that consistently in his repertoire right now, and that's fine. Like If you want to start him and hope he can get one time through the lineup, give you two or three innings, and, and that's fine. And honestly, that might be the best way to go right now. But then if you take him out of the bullpen equation, then it's tough. It's basically what we did on on Friday against Kentucky is we threw Cannon seven innings and we brought Woods in and threw him two innings. You, you kind of get the feeling watching that. I, I was concerned when I saw us bring, not just bring Woods in, but leave him in there for, this, for the eighth and the ninth inning. It's like, oh, so we're going to waste him right now. So we obviously don't feel good about Saturday and Sunday with the pitching situation. So we at least want to try to get one and get out of here, maybe luck up and, and just out slug them in one of these other games like we did against Mississippi State the previous week. So, I mean, you take him out of the, out of the bullpen and then, then you got some problems in the bullpen. But he just, I don't think he can consistently make it through an SEC lineup right now more than one time. If they see him once and try to get through it two or three times there with only two pitches, I don't think it's going to work well for him. You can, he can give you two or three innings which is basically what he's been doing. He's a middle reliever for us. Um, now he did kind of not just he didn't just bridge the gap between the starter and the closer on Saturday or on Friday. He was straight up. He was the the dude. He was the guy. We gave him the ball the last two innings and he he finished the drill for us and it was fantastic. He's a good pitcher. I just don't know if he's ready for that. I I think the long term plan is for him to be a guy like that. But he's just he has to continue to develop more pitches for him to be like a legit starter. I mean we just we're throwing guys out there. We, we and we brought a guy in on Saturday. A freshman, you throw him out there in a really, really tough situation. It was, Chan- was it Chandler Marsh? It was one of those guys, one of the young guys. I think it was Chandler Marsh. And it was a 2-2 count, had runners on base, and you know he didn't respond very well, and he got shelled, and they took the lead, and we just didn't really have a chance there. Like We started that game out, I think we were up 6-1, I want to say, and we ended up getting blown out in that game. So it's a problem right now. I am very concerned. I still think with Liam Sullivan, if he can come back in and pitch – even just a, a solid level for us. I think we have enough with Cannon on Friday nights and an improved offense. I think we can we can make the postseason. I think we can get into the NCAA tournament make, and get into the playoffs. Are we going to host a regional right now? I I don't see that right now. I don't. We were seven. We were ranked seventeenth last week, 
but we just lost to a team again. They got swept in the first in, in the first SEC series. They're not very good. Kentucky, I watched all those games. They're not very good, guys. We shouldn't have lost any of those games. We did. We lost two out of three. Two. Now, it was on the road, and road games are tough. I mean, like any sport. But I'm losing confidence right now because of the pitching situation. I, I am. So I'm concerned. So let's go back to the original question here. My Was it my concern on a scale of 1 to 10? 8? I, I, I'm not like... I'm not convinced we have no chance, but I'm highly concerned because this is a team in the past couple of years, we've started having more success and gotten things on track under Scott Strickland, even though we missed the postseason last year. Uh, this is a team that's been built around very strong starting pitching and just enough hitting. Like That's basically what we've done. Really good defense, strong starting pitching, and enough hitting, right? But this year it's going to have to be like flipped on its on its side, man. Like we're, we're have to have the inverse. We're, we have Cannon, but we're gonna have to win with offense and hope that we can get one with John Cannon and somehow just outslug teams on Saturday and Sunday. That's what it's gonna come down to. And I don't think that's a formula for consistent success. I do have hope that's enough success to get us back in the postseason, but I don't see us doing much damage and making much noise once we get there. You gotta have you gotta have two starting pitchers. You gotta have at least two starting pitchers and. Hopefully, Solvig can be that guy. I just haven't seen enough to really say in the SEC, can he be that guy? So, yeah, count me concerned. Count me concerned. All right, last question here today. This is a this is a different one for you guys, uh, but another longtime supporter of the podcast, uh, Lynn. Thank you for the question, Lynn. Really appreciate this. Lynn says your coverage on tennis and all other balls is so good. Thank you. I really appreciate that, Lynn. We try. Uh, I thought I would ask about the gym dogs. As a Georgia grad, some of my fondest memories were days strung together in the steg, watching basketball one day and gym dogs the next. Do you have any insight on their future? Lynn, I share those memories. So I graduated from UGA in 2007, and we were really good, right? What are we, 10, 10 national titles? Like, it's insane. I was at five straight, something crazy like that. And we were in the midst of that run with Suzanne Yachlin while I was still in school, and I had a hell of a time. We would go, you you would go to the gym dogs meets on Friday and you go to the basketball games on Saturday. And it was fun, man. It was like, and when I was in school, the gym dogs filled that arena, guys. Like it was sold out. It was, it was hard to get a ticket. Like you had to line up and get in there as a student. And uh, basketball, let's just say it wasn't that way. Like it was harder to get a ticket, harder to get into the gym dogs than it was to get in for the basketball games. That thing was humming. It was rolling. And then Suzanne Yachlin retires, and the secession plan didn't go as planned. Jay Clark was a longtime assistant. He gets the job after Yachlin moves on and, and steps down, and we didn't really give him. It's a, it's kind of like Mike White, right? It's the classic case of you don't want to be the guy who follows a legend. He followed the legend, and it wasn't good enough, and we fire. He moves on. He goes to LSU. Now, hey, you know what? LSU gymnastics is better than the Georgia gymnastics, which is crazy. That's crazy. It should never happen. Auburn gymnastics. Auburn. Auburn gymnastics. It's a cow pasture. They are now better than the gym dogs. And that's blasphemous. That should never happen. Now, I'm not going to sit here and say that I follow the gym dogs as closely as I follow football or basketball or baseball or tennis. I don't. But I, I watch the gym dogs more often than not. I don't go to a ton of meets anymore. But my wife is a former former gymnast. She loves gymnastics. And uh, she's taught me a lot about it. I've learned that they're not games. 
their competitions and I get in trouble when I call them something other than competitions. I've learned these things. I'm even an expert scorer. I've become really good at scoring these things. So they have these things called, it's every Friday night during the gymnastics season, they call it Friday Night Heights on the SEC Network. And we'll be out downtown, we'll be watching somewhere, wherever we are. We ask them to turn on SEC Network and we'll watch it. I'll be sitting there scoring it. And I've gotten good at it, guys. I can get it pretty close. So look, again, not an expert, but I watch a fair amount of college gymnastics because again, my wife likes it and it's interesting to watch. But guys, even as someone who's not a gymnastics expert and doesn't know all that much about the sport, I know we have fallen on hard times. So last year, we went three and five in SEC play. Now that should be unacceptable for Georgia gymnastics, right? The gym dogs, the legendary gym dogs. This is as blue blood as you could possibly get in college gymnastics. We basically invented the sport, didn't invent the sport, but like we were that team. Like Alabama and college football, that's who we were, right? That's, that's who Georgia gymnastics is. Well, this year, guys, the bottom fell out. Four and 10 overall, one and six in conference. And the way they do the scoring, guys, you know, if you get like a 198, that is elite. That's fantastic. If you're in the mid 197s, high 197s, you're going to win a lot of meets, but it's, it's good. It's really good. Guys, we could, we had trouble cracking 197. Like that's, that's who we were. So against Florida, Florida, you know, that they become really good in gymnastics. Great. Awesome. Right. They didn't even have a good meet against us here. They they didn't even crack 197. They were like 196.9. We put up a 194.4 in that meet, guys. Like you're not beating anybody. You are not beating anybody doing that. Our beam was a disaster for us all year. So many falls, and it didn't really get much better as the season progressed. Uh, we lost to LSU. Old Jay Clark came back into Athens and beat us again. They didn't perform that well. 196.8. Well, we had a 196.1. Not even close. Not even close. Uh, let's see, who do we in all right? Kentucky. Yep, Kentucky's better than us. That's right, guys. Kentucky gymnastics is now better than the gym dogs. Alabama's always a rival. Uh, we didn't rate 197 against them. Go figure. Auburn again, cow pasture people, somehow somehow now are great. Now they have the best college gymnast in the country right now. But was it Suni Lee, is I think her name? She's fantastic. I mean, I was watching that mean she pulled off. I I can't even describe what it was. I'm not smart to, to describe all the moves. It was insane, ridiculous. She's amazing. She's like the new Courtney Capets. Uh, but speaking of Courtney Capets, guys, this is the problem. And you really hate to criticize a former gym dog legend, right? I mean, if you go into Instagram Coliseum, they have that mural, right, up on the wall now. And she's dead center. She's the one that has the biggest part of that mural. She's dead center. She's the biggest figure. She's She was there when I was in school. I remember watching her, man. She was Freaking incredible. So crazy good. I mean, widely considered the greatest college gymnast of all time. But this is why, like, go back, I mean, to Jonas Jennings' idea of hiring a guy to say, hey, he loves Georgia, he's a Georgia guy, and he's got a little bit of experience. We should, it's no brainer we should hire him. No, you can't do that. It maybe it could work out, but it, there's no guarantee. And when it doesn't work out, it's ugly, which is what's happening with Courtney Capetz. She wasn't really qualified for the job. She had the backing of Suzanne Yachlin. Yachlin was kind of staying on as like a semi-assistant consultant kind of person the first year or two, and it just hasn't worked out. She didn't really have the experience of the job. She had no qualification other than the fact that she's the greatest college gymnast of all time and that she's a Georgia legend and her face is up there on the mural. And um, it's been very bad. I don't know how we're going to handle that. It's really tough to cut bait with someone like that. I think what we're probably going to do, and Bears watching over the next month, is let her contract run out. Her contract expires, if, my, uh, if I had this correct, I think it expires April 30th of this year. So like in a month. 
And I don't think that we're going to renew that contract. I think that Will should be allowed to kind of go out gracefully and just say she's taking new opportunities and and wants to explore different avenues or spend more time with her family, whatever it's going to be. We're not going to fire Courtney Capetza. That's tough to do with the context. But I do not think she will be our gymnastics coach next year. I don't have any inside information on that. I don't really have any contacts within the gymnastics program in that circle because, again, I don't follow it as closely. But I follow it closely enough, and I will say it's just unacceptable. From someone, Lynn, like you said, someone who grew up, didn't grow up watching gymnastics. I'm not going to go that far. But went to school in the heyday of Suzanne Yachlin. We were winning national title after national title, watching Courtney Capetz do insane things out there. It's, It's unacceptable. Like, would Alabama football allow this to happen? I mean, I know they've fallen on some hard times before, but you know what they did? They made changes. They made the necessary moves, the hard moves, and you know what? They went out and hired the best coach in the country, and now look where they are, right? Well, if we are in college gymnastics, if we are like Alabama football in the world of college gymnastics, that's who our program is, we need to act like it. And you can't just sit here and accept mediocrity. It's not even mediocrity. It's worse than mediocrity. This is, it's just flat out embarrassing right now. This cannot be okay. It cannot be allowed to happen. We can't just be happy with being a football school. And we're not, like we have some really good programs. You know, you guys know I love the tennis programs. They're fantastic. They're humming along right now. It was a rough weekend, rough weekend this past weekend, but still both fantastic. I still think they're both contenders in the SEC and even on a national scale as well. Swimming's been really good for a while. Golf's been solid. Baseball's trying to get there. Basketball, we know, has been a disaster. Equestrian is dominant. So we have some good programs. It's not just football, but I want to. I want that to be the expectation for all sports. And I think Josh Brooks does too. So I, my opinion on this, just watching this play out the past couple of years, I just don't think that we're going to renew her contract. So watch over the next month or so. And of course, if that ends up playing out the way I think it's going to play out, we will come back on here and cover that in more detail. But uh, I hate it. I, I hate to see an alumnus, a, a truly a legend like Courtney Capet struggle the way that she has. And again, I'm not an expert in gymnastics, so I don't really feel like I am qualified to tell you why it's not working, but I can look at the results and tell you it's not working. All right, even someone that's as much of a novice as I am in gymnastics, it's not working. And I hate to say that. I want it badly to work out for Courtney Capetz. I really do. It just, it hasn't, man. I've been rooting for her hard. Like really, I, I, I hate to even come on here and say, yeah, it's time to move on. But it, it's at that point, guys. Like it's just, it was abysmal this year. Just not even close, not even close. Okay, and I lied to you guys. We got one last question. I'm gonna work this one in because it's a topical question. Uh, it's just, uh, and I'm gonna try to end these shows as much as I can over the next couple of months with just a, a fun question. We get these from time to time. We get some good fun questions that don't really have much to do with on the field stuff. Just fun off season talk, and uh, we don't do a ton of that on this show because we like to be hardcore nuts and bolts football. We, we like to give you that stuff and that kind of perspective on Georgia sports. But it's nice to have some fun every now and then. It's, it, there's nothing wrong with that. So we'll, we'll throw this in here, and this is from Clint. So Clint asks, in light of the slap heard around the world at the Oscars last night. If you could man slap, if you guys aren't familiar with what I'm talking about, this is we're talking about the Will Smith, Chris Rock slap. If you haven't heard or seen about this, just go to Google and type in Will Smith. Just try typing in Will and it'll come up like immediately. So if you could man slap any former college football player or coach, all Will Smith style, who would it be and why? Oh, there's one name that comes instantly to mind for me. And if you guys have been listening to the podcast for a while, which I know most of you have, you probably know where I'm going with this. And maybe this is recency bias, perhaps, but it's got to be Dan Mullen, right? Like, and I know like he's gone now, so maybe it's just like adding insult to injury. 
I still would love to slap the guy. You know, and I don't advocate violence. I don't. You should never do that. There's no need for that. But like, if if somebody came to me and said, "All right, Tyler, you have to, you have to slap one former player or coach in college football history. Go pick somebody. You have to, or I got a gun to your head, right?" If I have to slap somebody, well, I'm slapping Dan Mullen. I'm not even thinking twice about it. I mean, there's some other guys that that I would slap too. I mean, Cam Newton comes to mind. I just people would say Tim Tebow. I, Tim Tebow would be on the list. He was not as annoying to me as as like his head coach. Honestly, Urban Meyer. I would slap Urban Meyer over Tim Tebow because I think Tebow like did he play up his, his Christianity and and his image? Of course he did. And like the crying at the press conference, like oh yes, all that's nauseating. Of course it is, but. I don't. I think deep down he's probably not a bad guy. Like I hate to admit that, but probably not a bad guy. Like egotistical, sure, all of them are to some degree, right? But Urban Meyer is just like a scumbag, right? He's just a straight up scumbag. So he'd be very high on my list as well. But to me, I mean, come on, it, it, it's got to be Dan Mullen, right? And why? Like, <laughs> do I need to list all the reasons why? If you've been listening to the podcast for the past couple of years, you know. I mean, just the, the sheer awkwardness of the man, like this faux bravado that he had in just the cringe-worthy quotes and the little petty shots he would take at really anybody, especially Georgia. Like his inability to see how he was perceived, like the lack of self-awareness and just the continual of digging himself a grave. Um, and just the, the sarcastic, smart-ass comments. Oh yes, oh yes, I would slap the bejesus out of that man. If I had to, of course, I would never advocate violence. But if someone had a gun to my head and said, you had to slap somebody in the college football world, who would it be? Damn old. Hands down. No questions asked. But all right, guys, that is it for today. So I got through, I don't know how many questions, got through some more, but we'll get through some more next week as well. We'll keep doing this week after week throughout the rest of the offseason. So again, if you have some questions, send them in, guys. Send them in. We'll cover them on the show at some point throughout the offseason. You can hit us up on Twitter at glory underscore UGA. Email us at gloryugapodcast at gmail.com and we'll add them to the list and we will get to them here over the next couple of weeks and months. But thank you for listening, guys. Curtis will be back with me later on this week. We'll be doing our recap of week two of Georgia spring football practice. So we'll have a, a lot of fun talking some more football for you guys later on this week. So make sure to check back then. But thank you for listening. I'm your host, Tyler. And as always, go dogs. <laughs>